Ladies and gentlemen, in the red corner, hailing from the state of Nevada, representing the steam and wise guys, it's the always feared Vegas Odds Maker! And in the blue corner, the crowd favorite from South Florida, Mark Winning Picks Lawrence! Hi, everybody. Welcome back once again. This is Mark Lawrence along with Victor King and our good friend Andy Isco from Las Vegas as we're all set to go against the spread on this sweet 16 weekend of the NCAA basketball tournament. And, guys, if you can believe it, it's sweet 16 weekend. I don't know where the time has gone, but I know there's a lot of good basketball teams that are gone in this tournament as well. Uh, definitely, Mark. Let me throw in my two cents if I can here. Somebody, I don't know who, but they're off a very, very good weekend in basketball, and that would be Mark Lawrence's preferred picks late phone service in that four-day period of Thursday through Sunday. Let's see here. I have got eight and four ATS, 67% against the spread, and that's with a combination of NCAA tournament games NBA games, even NIT tournament games. Uh, not only that, but the weekend where we, you know, usually play a little bit more. Mark Service went five and one over the weekend. Again, Mark, nicely done in that four-day period. And Mark even started the new week this week, last night, with another winner, this time in the NIT tournament on uh, North Texas, the Mean Green. So nicely done in the baskets. And I know a lot of Mark Lawrence clients are eagerly looking forward to this weekend. Well, so too is Mark Lawrence. I could tell you that, Victor. <laughs> if it's anything like it was last weekend, as far as the upsets go, and, you know, we all love upsets. I'm a dog lover by nature. Victor, you're a dog lover in more ways than one uh, with the, the family of dogs. And uh, also, Andy, I know you're a dog lover as all as well. I know when it comes to handicapping these games, your first move is almost always to, toward the dog. Am I correct in that? You are correct. And uh, like Victor, I enjoy, I don't have any dogs of my own, but uh, I enjoy them very, very much. And especially the kind that you bet on as well. The, and the, uh, the human variety of dog, I guess you could call it that. And uh, as far as uh, an assessment of the, of the tournament thus far, it's hard to believe how quickly this tournament flies of the 68 teams. 52 of them went home last uh, last week and last weekend. I mean, this, this tournament just reduces itself in what seems like the blink of an eye. And if you look at the four regionals this week, I'll tell you the one, the one out here in Las Vegas, the Western regional, that's a good final four for an entire tournament. Well, we knew going in Andy that the uh, Western regional appeared to be the deepest tournament and it held its own. It's held serve, if you will. And as you mentioned here, there's four outstanding teams inside that region, if you will, going into this particular weekend. And we'll see how it all fares out. And speaking about teams going home early, uh, earlier on in a couple of shows we had done before, when the NCAA had revealed its top 16 teams two weeks before the start of the tournament, and they revealed all four of their seeds, seeds number one through four of those 16 teams, it's uh, sort of a little bit uh, ironic in a sense that exactly half of those teams made it to the Sweet 16, and exactly two seeds from every one of their four brackets made it to the Sweet 16. The number one seeds that survived were Alabama and Houston. 
The number two seeds were Texas and UCLA. The number three seeds, Tennessee and Kansas State. And the number four seeds, Xavier and Gonzaga. So I guess that goes a long way, Victor, toward the relevance of the net rankings and how powerful they actually are. I know it's what the NCAA relies most heavily upon are those net rankings. Yeah, indeed, Mark. Uh, and uh, in terms of our dogs and favorites, it was, was pretty much split down the middle that first opening weekend. I've got our uh, playbook database at underdogs going 25, 26, and 1. They went uh, 2 and 2 ATS in those first four games, you know, those play in Tuesday and Wednesday games. On uh, Thursday and Friday, dogs, I got them going 14 and 18 ATS, 8 and 8 on Thursday, 6 and 10 on Friday. They made a nice comeback over the weekend, going nine, six, and one against the spread. For me, the most surprising thing, obviously, was the poor shooting, <laughs> the extremely low scoring, the fact that they're experimenting with a new basketball, and teams are a little bit unfamiliar with that, and the fact that we've got a lot of tight rims in uh, neutral sites. Uh, I mean, unders, I mean, they get cashed at an astronomically high rate and that was after a season in which overs actually had a historically great regular season. Uh, let's see here. Tuesday, 0-2 over-under. Wednesday's games went 1-1. One one. Thursday, 6-10. And, and again, that's six overs, 10 unders. Friday was the big day. 14 out of the 16 games on Friday ended wow. up going under the total. 2-14 and 14 over-under on Friday. Saturday followed up with another strong under day as uh, they went two and six, two over, six unders. Sunday's games made a good comeback, actually going 75% over the total, six and two over under. I'm not surprised if you had the guts to bet some overs on Sunday. There was tremendous line value. I'm sure Andy will agree based on the fact that the Friday and Saturday games went, what, uh, four and 20 over under. So, again, if you had the guts to come out firing with some overs on Sunday, you probably did pretty well. But still, guys, through the first, uh, what, five, six days of the tournament now, 17 overs, 35 unders, 67% under the total. Yeah, interestingly, uh, you mentioned the split on Saturday and Sunday, and Sunday, I guess, was the over day. Right. Teams had been familiar with the basketball and, of course, they'd also been familiar with the court, having already won their uh, first game. You know, it's interesting. There were two PUs over the weekend. The good PU was Princeton University. The PUPU was uh, Purdue University, <laughs> sort of like the uh, the uh, you know, agony and the ecstasy from uh, Purdue to uh, uh, Princeton. You know, I've talked about the Western region. If I uh, uh, have a couple of moments here, uh, Arkansas, UCLA, Connecticut, and Gonzaga. Since 1985, the field went to 64 teams. Those four teams have combined for six uh, national championships and 15 appearances in the uh, final four. So it's sort of like uh, uh, we think of the Blue Bloods as North Carolina, the Dukes, the Kentuckys. I guess you'd have to say historically you'd throw the UCLA's in there. But certainly over the past 20 years or so, Connecticut has joined that group. Arkansas has had a couple of, uh, of outstanding seasons. And really, if you go back over the last six seasons, uh, maybe even a few seasons beyond that, uh, Gonzaga has done uh, uh, extremely well. So wouldn't be surprised if the tournament winner comes out of that region because looking at the paths to the Final Four and then, well, certainly the paths to the Final Four, let's say, 
those four, the, the, the winner of the West region will have had the two toughest games, I believe, to get to the final four. Well, Andy, who is the who are the top teams in the West? We, uh, re- refresh our uh, our listeners out there of the teams to beat. You think would be coming out of the West? Well, the 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 uh, top seeds were um, uh, that that was the uh, Kansas group, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you have UCLA, Gonzaga, and Connecticut, who were two, three, and four, yes. and then Arkansas was a number eight seed who knocked off Kansas in the second round, you know, round number two, the, the field of 32. So any four of those teams right now, um, Alabama and Houston are pretty close to being uh, the tournament favorites with four games left to uh, win. Uh, UCLA, Connecticut, Gonzaga all have reasonable odds, one, two, three seeds, and then Arkansas a little bit further behind at 14 to one. Of course, they've got uh, uh, they've got a, a the easy well, you would think the easier of the two paths because Gonzaga and Connecticut, uh, Gonzaga and UCLA rather, are fairly evenly matched. There would tend to be a situational advantage or certainly a strength advantage of UConn over Arkansas because the Big East is pretty much on a par with with a major conference like the SEC based upon what the top of that uh, conference did this year. And uh, the one problem I have with Arkansas, and of course I lived there for a number of years, so there's a certain amount of allegiance there, not a very good free throw shooting team. And when I look at uh, free throw shooting, I look at it from the perspective of teams being able to maintain or extend leads if they have the lead late in the game and they play the, uh, you know, foul them on the inbounds play uh, game. Andy Isco joining us from Las Vegas from TheLogicalApproach.com along with Victor King from King Creole Sports as we're reviewing the NCAA basketball tournament as we head into the NCAA Sweet 16 round. And guys, let me ask you this question here. Uh, If you had to put it in a capsule, what was the most memorable scene that you remember from the NCAA tournament the first two rounds? Victor, I'm going to put that on you, the most memorable scene that you took away from the first two rounds. Uh, well, Mark, I, I, again, a long time ago, you know, a guy, uh, a very smart guy told me to find your niche in this business, stay in your lane. And for me, it was just the lack of good shooting over basically a four-day period. The clunkers, the rim rattlers. It was it was the fact that, uh, uh, you know, hey, I got out of there okay myself. On Friday and Saturday, I put out one over on each day, uh, went one and one. And then for me, I just went home over the weekend and focused on the NBA, not knowing what would happen in those weekend games. So for me, it still has to be the bad shooting, particularly uh, what happened on Friday. Uh, at, At one point, I was flabbergasted when there was a possibility that 15 out of 16 games might go under the total because of bad shooting. I'm also interested in hearing a little bit more about this new basketball that they've been uh, utilizing as the tournament commenced. Andy, same question to you. What was the most memorable thing that you left the NCAA first two rounds with? Well, there there are three thoughts that come immediately to mind. The non the non true basketball-related uh, item would be Eric Musselman uh, undressing and throwing his shirt into the stands after Arkansas upset Kansas in the round of 32. As far as on the court, I enjoyed the fact that the tournament began with 
the buzzer beater and the close competition in the West Virginia-Maryland game, and then in the Virginia-Furman game, the first two games to kick off the main tournament of uh, 64 teams. And then the third item would have to be the final game of the, the opening weekend with uh, two point spread changes in the final seven seconds between Gonzaga and TCU, where TCU was covering, Gonzaga made their free throws, and then with, uh, what, under uh, two seconds to go, TCU hits that uh, long three-pointer to uh, cut the margin to uh, to four points and enable them to cover the four-and-a-half, five-point spread. So those are the three things that uh, stand out amongst many uh, highlights from the weekend. Well, Andy, I'm with you on one of those three. I think Eric Musselman ripping off his shirt had to be a classic uh, <laughs> to see the elation, the total elation that he was uh, uh, undergoing at that particular time. My other might have been Tom Izzo in near tears uh, as he was uh, talking about the victory and where his basketball team is and everything they've overcome. Uh, sort of a heartfelt moment, if you will. Uh, one other note here before we're going to move on over to our featured Sweet 16 game of the week. I want to make this capsule moment here that in the playbook Sweet 16 guide, we outline the teams that check out eight element boxes. And we've had 19 of the last 20 NCAA basketball tournament winners come out of those boxes. And there were six teams that entered into this NCAA basketball tournament this year, one of them not being Alabama. So if Alabama goes on and wins this basketball tournament, you know, they're going to kind of mess up that 19-1 and winning run. UConn was the only other team to do just that. But the six teams, for just for a reminder's sake, going into this weekend that were picked to win the NCAA basketball tournament by formula were Gonzaga, Houston, Kansas, who's out, Marquette, who's out, Purdue, who's out, and UCLA. So the fortunes of the Elite eight elements lie in the hands of Gonzaga, Houston, and UCLA. We'll see exactly how that all shakes out this particular. And UCLA and Gonzaga will reduce that field by one uh, on uh, Thursday night. Yes, they will. Exactly right. So that's going to be interesting to see exactly how that all shakes out. You're tuned in to Mark Lawrence against the spread, the nation's most popular sports handicapping talk show. And before I get into that game, guys, here, what – I'm going to answer this question also here, but it just coming to my mind here. What happens moving forward in the NCAA basketball tournament that would be the biggest surprise to you moving forward? We've seen the surprises in the first two rounds. We saw the Fairleigh Dickinsons. We saw the Princetons of the basketball world. Moving forward now when it gets to be championship round, championship game, what would be the biggest surprise moving forward to you, Victor, that would happen from here on out in the NCAA basketball tournament? I think we've arrived at a place where uh, the upsets – are going to be more commonplace. Uh, you know, what we learned from this season, we talked about the, you know, the lack of a good season from a lot of the Blue Blood programs. Uh, I, I believe that the most surprising thing is that the tournament is going to be a lot more wide open than we see in the past. Uh, mid-major conferences doing well. Some of these uh, Division two schools doing well. So I think it's the fact that the, the tournament is going to be a lot more wide open than we are used to seeing. Victor's looking for some wide open basketball games moving forward in a year of a tournament that was expected to be totally wide open and it's playing out to form that way, if you will. Andy, your thought about what would surprise you the most moving forward in the NCAA tournament? I'll sort of picking up upon what Victor was uh, discussing. Uh, we mentioned it last week that 
there was really no team to beat at the for the majority of the season. I guess you could say Alabama and Houston were the two teams that uh, once the season got underway were switching back between first and second. Kansas, after a sluggish start, they got into the conversation as being perhaps a championship team, of course, as defending champions. And then, of course, you had uh, Purdue, uh, which I think we all thought was not deserving or certainly questionably deserving a, uh, a number one seed. UCLA was up there as well. So they're really more more than in many years where there's one, possibly two teams that would be expected to be the teams to beat. There were four or five legitimate teams that could have made a case for being amongst the top seeds and not a great deal of difference uh, between them. And I guess uh, another thought that we had was uh, the fact that didn't think much of the Big Ten this year. And sure enough, they sent eight teams to the tournament. And maybe the biggest surprise is with only one team left, that team has to be your aforementioned Michigan State, which just shows that, uh, uh, you know, when you start the calendar year, and I forget who said it, it's been said a number of places, you know, when the uh, calendar changed from uh, 22 to uh, uh, 23, the months were January, February, and Izzo because he's been there so often as his team uh, plays so well so late. But as far as what might be surprising, although it's hard to say anything, I suppose if we saw uh, a Final Four uh, with uh, either Princeton or um, I think it would be San Diego State uh, in the uh, championship game because that would mean they'd get by uh, Alabama. And the same thing, I think, maybe to a little bit of a lesser extent, although I think uh, there is a chance that Houston uh, assuming they both win this weekend, Houston and Texas could be a very entertaining game. And I would give Texas a decent chance at uh, knocking off uh, uh, off Houston. You know, if you recall, Houston didn't play a lot of non-conference games against quality teams. And you don't want to make a big deal out of one game that they played back in uh, November, December. But it's really about the only quality game that we have and that was Texas, uh, Houston rather, losing at home to Alabama. It was a relatively competitive game. I think the final margin was about six. So when you take a look at a team like Texas coming out of the Big 12, which was arguably the best conference, very competitive conference, and look, the team that gets no respect, Kansas State, you know, a number three seed, and they're an underdog in the uh, round of uh, Sweet 16. Maybe we see a Texas-Kansas State final. That might be a bit of a surprise to many people. Well, I think my biggest surprise, Andy, right now, given the fact that two number one seeds are out, uh, would be not seeing Alabama and Houston playing for the national championship. I sort of think the the sea is parted, if you will, in that sense. It makes the path a little bit easier for both of these number one seeds to get there. Uh, and I'd be really stunned if we don't see on April 3rd, Alabama and Houston not playing basketball that particular night. Well, they are both the considerable favorites. I think we mentioned right around one's a little under 4-1, to one, one's a little uh, above 4-1, to one, and then I think the drop-off, and I forget the three teams, they're about 8-1. to one. That's a significant drop-off between the top two teams and whoever you want to put third when, when we get to the round of the Sweet 16. Absolutely. It's, you know, that's one of the reasons I think their path will be easier because they were the two horses to beat, if you will, entering the basketball tournament. And you mentioned about the, uh, the, the tournament in the Big Ten and how poor they did. One out of eight teams are still alive in the Sweet 16 round. The conference had fared the best in the Sweet 16 round. That held serve was the Big East. Big East, yep. Yep, they had five teams in. Three of them are still playing, guys. You know, that, that's a tribute to the Big East uh, Conference. They, they were kind of like maybe walking backwards the previous couple of years, but they really held serve again this year. Southeast Conference, eight teams in, three teams alive. Big 12, seven teams, only two of them alive. ACC, only one of five are still alive. The Pac-12, only one of four. And the Mountain West Conference, only one of four. 
And with that, what do you say we tear apart our featured college basketball Sweet 16 game of the week? Now, there are other better games in the card, but this is a game I think is going to be appealing to a lot of fans who watch the basketball game. If you like underdogs, you're going to like what we're talking about. And on the other side of the equation here is a team that I think happens to maybe be, Andy, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think the Vegas Wise Guy team uh, that a lot of Vegas has supported here, if not in their conference tournament, at least in the NCAA tournament. I'm talking about Creighton. When Creighton plays Princeton this particular weekend, Victor, how do you see this game shaping out from an over-under standpoint, the Blue Jays and the Tigers? You know, Mark, you mentioned the uh, profitable record of the Big East Conference. So they, in fact, they were the only conference uh, that uh, collectively hit at 60% or higher thus far in the NCAA tournament, 6-3 and three ATS overall for the Big East tournament. And since... This game covers one of those two teams in the Creighton Blue Jays. I thought I would throw that in there again. Big East, uh, best conference thus far at 6 and 367% ATS. So we're going to the Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. This is the Friday late game, 9 o'clock tip off. Princeton and Creighton uh, on the season, the uh, Ivy League Tigers. Let's see here 143.4. That is their average combined points per game. Creighton right around 145.2, and that's right around this week's over-under number. It opened at 140.5. It's come down about a half point, 140.0. Again, as we record the podcast here on Wednesday afternoon. On the season, Princeton uh, surprisingly more overs than under, 16 and 13 over-under. On the season for the Tigers, now, they were a very, very good over team at home this year, 9-3 over-under at home, 153.2. Uh, only 6-5 and over-under on the road. And here's a key stat on their neutral sites this season. Princeton did end up going 1-5 over-under, 1 over-5 unders, 129.7. So their neutral site games, uh, about 14 points per game less than their games at home this season. Uh, yes, they did close the year on a very good 9-2 and over-under run before going under the total in both of their tournament uh, tournament games. They went under by 40 points then opening round game against Arizona. They went under by 15 points against that uh, second-round winner against Missouri. For Creighton on the season, pretty much a middle-of-the-road over-under team. The Blue Jays 16-18-1. and Again, 145.2, a good under team at home. Uh, split down the middle in their road games, 6-6 six and six over under. They did go under by 13.5 in their opening round game against NC State. They did go over the total against Baylor by 17 points uh, in their second round game. So let me get here. Uh, we got two teams who are ranked low in offensive tempo this season. Neither team is what you would call a run-and-gun team. Uh, neither is ranked in the top 40 even in the pace of play. Creighton 142, Princeton 192 in pace of play on the season. Uh, on defense, you got a good Creighton team. I'm sure Mark will talk about them. Uh, 13th best defense this year in efficiency for the Blue Jays. Uh, what I do like about this game going under the total is the fact that you got two teams who are not strong on the glass offensively, but very strong on the glass from a defensive uh, rebounding position, which tends to do what? Limit their opponents to just one shot per possession. 
the hidden stat or the hidden gem in this particular game could very well be uh, defensive turnovers as each team is ranked in the bottom 15 in the country in forcing turnovers. So you got poor marks and offensive rebounding. You got each possession in the play log when we read the box score may read just as a single shot and a defensive rebound with no trips to the foul line. If you combine those aspects with each team's top 35 rank against catch and shoot threes, both defenses very good in that area. I think the formula is here for multiple scoring droughts. And for that reason, we'll look to go under 140 points in this game. You'll probably want to get on board as soon as possible. I think it goes down into the high 130s once we get to the uh, Friday night tip-off. On the side, NCAA tournament games involving Ivy League teams, 134.0 points per game combined in the last 10 years, three overs, 10 unders. Of course, that applies to Princeton. And then finally, Big East round three favorites in the NCAA tournament, 135.0 combined points per game. That, of course, applies to Creighton. We'll be going low, playing the under, Princeton against Creighton on Friday night. Victor goes under the total in the Princeton-Creighton basketball game for his side in the contest. Andy, before I get to my side, I want to ask you your take on this basketball matchup. And do you feel that Creighton is a wise guy type team? There's been a lot of support for this team, if not in this tournament, at least to end the basketball season. Am I correct in that assumption? Yeah, I, I think the Big East teams, as a rule now, there were five of there were five of them in the tournament, and for much of the year, all five of them were considered tournament teams and playing extremely well. Uh, as we got later in the season, Providence slipped a little bit, and so you were left with UConn, Xavier, uh, Creighton, and um, I'm leaving someone out there as far as uh, the Big East goes. Um, Providence. Uh, I should mention Providence, but it was. Uh, uh, um, Marquette. Yeah. Yeah. So Marquette, Creighton, Xavier, and, um, UConn were the four teams, I think, heading into the tournament that, uh, a lot of people had support. I think actually the team that got the most support here in Vegas amongst the wise guys and the sharp handicappers was UConn. And of course, uh, they're still alive and, you know, they have uh, arguably the e- easier way uh, to uh, make it to the Elite Eight with their game against Arkansas, whereas uh, uh, UCLA and Gonzaga will be squaring off against uh, uh, one another. Um, as far as this uh, Princeton game is concerned, Princeton can score points, and they're also excellent at uh, limiting points, which makes me think that Princeton realizing, at least, and, and Henderson, the coach, has done an outstanding job. In fact, I think he's 3-0 and uh, in now uh, in the tournament against the spread, including uh, his, the previous appearance a few years ago, that uh, Princeton has to realize that they are not the overall better athletic team against Creighton. And I think that lends itself to a comfortable style. I know Victor likes the under, and I would tend to agree with that from a standpoint of Princeton's best chance of staying in this game is frustrating Creighton and making them work hard for their shots and also at the same time taking time off the clock when Princeton has something other than, say, fast break uh, opportunities. Uh, I think for that reason, it might actually set up to be what they would call a correlated parlay. Now, I'm not suggesting a parlay, but I think if you like Princeton, 
you probably like the under. If you like Creighton, you might like the over because if Princeton falls behind, they may be forced to pick up the pace uh, to catch up to Creighton. Neither of the teams are outstanding uh, three-point shooting teams. They're not bad, and defensively they're pretty decent. But if you if Princeton can control the pace and keep this game within, say, five to seven points, there's a better chance that it stays under with Princeton covering than it does with Creighton covering. I happen to agree with the uh, the under part of the play, and I also happen to like Princeton the way they play. Uh, Princeton is a pretty good rebounding team for an Ivy League team, and I think that that gives them an opportunity to both dictate a pace and also limit second shot opportunities. This is such a fundamentally well-coached team that I expect Princeton to make a game. But I mean, look, they knocked out another one of the hot teams in beating Arizona in their opening game. And then they came back and uh, did a number on Missouri in the, uh, in the second round. So I think that uh, Princeton goes into this game with confidence. And of course, keep in mind now, when you win the first round game, you have less than 48 hours to prepare for your opponent. Uh, for the round of 32. Well, now you've had four or five days for these teams to fully scout and break down the film, or I guess they call it the digital tape these days, on your opponent. So we may also expect better ability to take away what the other team sees as uh, their strength. Excellent fundamental matchup by Andy Isco from TheLogicalApproach.com. A great over-under total take from Victor King of King Creole Sports. I'll throw my two cents in with my technical look at this basketball matchup here. The Princeton Tigers are looking to become the first Ivy League team to reach the Final Four going all the way back to 1979. They're carrying a lot of uh, banners and feeling awfully good about themselves. We note from the Playbook Sweet 16 guide that 11 or worse seeded dogs of five or more points in this round are 11 and two against the spread the last 10 years. They don't get a lot of love, I guess you would say, from the odds maker, but when they take in this points, they seem to do quite well. You take a look here also that Princeton comes in here having won their last three games in a row all as an underdog, meaning they won the first two legs of this tournament, they won their conference tournament as an underdog, now they make the Sweet 16, and here they are. This team makes the Sweet 16. And all of a sudden, what are they going to do in this particular role of three straight-up underdog wins in a row? The database supports the Princeton Tigers. Teams in this particular role are 9-5-1 against the spread, including a perfect 6-0 against the spread when they take on an opponent off a win, which basically means it wasn't a second-round game or it wasn't an opening-round game. It kind of goes hand-in-hand, guys, with the fact that, and I, I really dig this stat here, the fact that the biggest favorite in the Sweet 16 round of the tournament has only covered the spread seven of the last 21 times. They've struggled against the spread. The largest favorite has. Inside those covers, they've gone 0-7 against the spread when that team is coming off an underdog win, as is Princeton. You put it all together to me for a dog lover like I am, I'll be on Princeton plus the points in this basketball matchup. That's sort of my take on this basketball game. You're tuned in to Mark Lawrence against the spread, the nation's most popular sports handicapping talk show. And with that, we're going to join in now with our good friend Jim Feist as he joins us from Las Vegas. Jim did a great job on the show last week, and I know he's got some great information, something that's going to really drop your jaw, what Jim has to say. And with that, we're going to welcome Jim Feist to the show. Jim, how's everything going for you in Vegas these days? 
Well, I get I get mixed emotions. Okay, first of all, I'd like to hats off to Japan for what they did. Otani is unbelievable. We were talking about that before we went on the air. I don't know what to make of this guy. He's a unicorn. He's uh, like once in a lifetime thing to watch. It's it's, it's quite amazing. Um, how am I enjoying this? Well, I had a great season, regular season, because I got to stop there. <laughs> because I was Mr. <laughs> Follow in the regular season, 120 and 78. Great record. Almost, nice. Almost totally 60%, just a little short. Since the tournaments have started, the conference tournaments and the and these other post-season tournaments, I'm not follow anymore. I'm Mr. Fade. <laughs> <laughs> it means just it just the lesson there is this not not just eating humble pie, but the lesson is to everybody out there that thinks this easy. This is easy. We all know that it's not. The four of us know it's not, but they don't because they hear a lot of crap out there. You know, how, how people pick all these games and all these winners. And we all go through good streaks. But we also go through bad streaks. And the difference in the in the 54 years I've been doing this, which is about the same amount of time that you've been doing it, Mark, um, we have seen a lot of people come into the industry, do really, really well for a year or two, and then just blow their brains out by thinking that they're actually smarter than the game. And they're not. And eventually it's going to catch up to you. And for example, I'm in 120 and 78. I'm very, very proud of that. But then I get into the conference tournaments and nothing's working. I mean, just every bad beat and every bad pick. I mean, bad picks too. Bad picks and bad beats. And when you combine them all together, I mean, it's easy to go one and 10. Believe me, I've done it too many times in my life. So, I mean, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All well, I know exactly what you're talking about. Even Otani has gone on a 1 in 10 at bat streak, okay? <laughs> it happens. It happens to the best of us. And right. uh, one thing I might correct you on, though, Jim, you said 54 years, almost as long as I, I've been. I'm only 54 years old. Jim. <laughs> <laughs> now, wait a minute. I think there's other people on this show right now that are kind of hiding their faces. I don't think anybody <laughs> believe that. <laughs> no, Jim and I go back a long, long way in this industry, guys. So, you know, I'm talking back in the 70s. And, you know, Jim was uh, uh, even there before I was a few years, maybe five years before I was. So there's a lot of a lot of wealth and a lot of knowledge. We talked about Mort Olshin last week and uh, how he was a pioneer in the industry. And it was one of my, my the moments I remember the most was picking up the phone and had a call from Mort Olson one day, and we began chatting, and it became wow. a weekly conversation. It was it was really really nice and endearing to everybody. Jim, I'm sorry to hear about your current run in the NCAA basketball term because I know nobody works as hard as you do at this stuff, and you know things are going to turn. We talked earlier with Andy Isco and uh, Victor King, and I was asking them about. What has been the biggest surprise that you've seen in the tournament so far? What uh, that has happened that you weren't expecting to happen? Well, it, it wasn't that I, I, I saw a lot of parody and I going into it, I said, there's probably 20 or 25 teams that could end up winning this thing. Poor coaching. You know, I'm shocked at the bad, at some of the bad coaching. I mean, for, and maybe there's an excuse to this and maybe there isn't. Maybe, I don't know basketball as well as I know betting. 
so I'm not going to profess to be. But what happened the other day with, with Purdue? Now, I wasn't on Purdue. I was actually against them. But how can you have a guy 7'4", that's, I guess, the number one player in the country by a lot of people's thoughts, and for the last six minutes of the game, he doesn't even get the ball? I mean, how do you do that? Now, granted, if you look at the coach's record, he's had a good regular season record. And in the postseason in the past, he's been absolutely terrible. The same thing with the IO coach. Terrible in the postseason in games. So I'm shocked at how bad these coaches are in certain spots. And they don't learn from year to year what their mistakes were. We all, I mean, we would all be broke. If we didn't learn from our mistakes, we learn a lot more from our mistakes. So if we did that in our profession, we would all be busted. But I mean, they come into these things and they, I don't know how you do things like that. And yeah, you can have the games where, uh, who was it the other night? Gonzaga is playing TCU and the kid hits the shot at the end and billions of dollars change hands because you know, from, and nobody guarded them. The kids, that happens all the time. That's just random luck. But when you make decisions and you're paid a lot of money to make good decisions and you let things like this happen, I don't understand it. Well, what was amazing to me, Jim, is the, the Fairleigh Dickinson basketball team. I think most of the time on the floor, the tallest player was 6'3 from Fairleigh Dickinson. Exactly. They're the shortest. I think the shortest team in the whole field. Yes, they were. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and it, they had the tallest player in the in the tournament on the other side. And why the ball wasn't pounded down low to him is a mystery to everybody, I'm sure. Uh, Andy, any question you have of Jim? Uh, you both reside in Las Vegas. You're both seeing moves that are happening in Las Vegas. We talked earlier about how all the unders have just been a, 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 an avalanche of cashing tickets here. Any thoughts that you have for Jim while we have him on the show? Well, I'm going to make one one comment first before a question, and that is Jim talked about Purdue. They may, you know, we all talk about unbreakable records in sports. Purdue has now been eliminated by double-digit seeds three straight tournaments. That may be very, very difficult, not for Purdue to extend the record or break it, for any team to lose three straight times to a double-digit seed because it means you're one of the top part of the bracket, they're one of the lower part. For that to happen three points in a row, three times in a row, that's uh, somewhat uh, uh, unfathomable. Now, as far you, as, you know, you were talking, and I'm going to ask Jim about this, con- this concept. We talked about, with Victor's work, all the unders that predominated in the first two rounds of the tournament. How much of an adjustment... Uh, Jim, do you think we have seen or will see, well, two two parts of it. How much of an adjustment do you believe we've seen in the totals that were posted based upon the preponderance of unders? And then the second part of it is how much, if any, of a further move towards the unders will we see by the betters who are reacting to the numbers that may have already been adjusted? Well, the better, the betters, the money, great question. The, the, the money is going to, because of that, what has happened, the money is going to be on the unders, which will lower the numbers. But I don't think with only uh, 16 teams left, I don't think we're going to see that trend continue. And, and and we haven't mentioned it, but I don't know how many people actually bet first halves. The first halves under are actually better than the full game unders because at the end of the game, 
we get all that foul shooting and right. it takes, you know, it's, it's, there's only two minutes left, but it takes 45 minutes to play it because everybody's going to the foul line. If you're betting the first half's under, it's actually a better record than the full game unders and the full game unders were in met, in met, amazingly good. And Victor, I know charts all of this stuff, but I think in the final games that we have, I don't think we're going to see that tendency like we did earlier in, in the tournament. Well, that, that brings up a, a second part of the question. And that is you mentioned the uh, first half unders. Now we know when the lines maker sets the total for the full game, He's not necessarily saying, well, it's going to be, you know, 70-30, the splits between the halves. It's going to be maybe 55-45, you know, 45% of the points scored in the first half, 55 in the second half. But we've seen some unusually low-scoring first halves. Are there any guidelines that you follow or might suggest for those who might consider playing the second half overs in games that are, let's say, 10 to 15 points below the midpoint of what a total is being set? the game i would i would like victor to answer that question because he focuses more on totals than i do uh i'm a big total player in the nfl but when it comes to college basketball other than the first halves i don't mess with it as much uh because of the foul shooting at the end so that would be a i think victor would probably be able to give a better answer to that than i would Andy, I didn't catch the first, like, 10 seconds of your question there. What was that about? Okay, when we have unusually low-scoring first halves in these games, we know the total for the game is based upon 40 minutes of play. We don't know what the spread is going to be, although generally second halves are higher scoring than first halves because of the stuff that goes on at the end of the game with the foul shooting and then et cetera. Are there any guidelines that you follow when there are unusually low-scoring first halves that would cause you to say, you know what, this is a good opportunity, a good number to play overs in the second half. Uh, and I know that at halftime, you don't have a lot of time to react when you are at halftime. But uh, what I do is go in there as quick as possible, look at the stats for that first half of the game. Let's take a look at, for instance, free throw numbers. If our numbers are down slightly, uh, obviously, the law of averages says that in the second half, our three throw numbers will be going up, increasing the value on the uh, over in the second half of those games. So you've got to be prepared to move very, very quickly at halftime, review the box score up until then, and then make a move. Uh, my only question for both Andrew and for uh, uh, Jim is the fact that I think it's fantastic that the uh, uh, you guys are in a city that's going to be hosting the West Regional Semifinals this weekend, T-Mobile Arena, Las Vegas, Arkansas, Connecticut on Thursday night, Gonzaga and UCLA uh, as the late game. Are either you two guys going to be heading out to T-Mobile Arena on Thursday? I won't, uh, but there's a there's a real valid reason for that. I'm a, uh, I actually bet a lot of uh, events and... I like to live bet and to be at a, an arena where you don't always have great connections, right. you don't have all your computers. I like to bet like there's some games right now that I'm betting what they call pre-flop. Okay. Pre-tip. <laughs> but during the game, as it starts and see what the coaches are doing and what's happening, that's where I bet, bet most of my money 
is during those those events. Now, years ago, we couldn't do that. And it's very difficult right. to get your bets in quickly because they change so fast. Even with, I have a, 11 things going on over here, I still can't get them in. So most of the time in the spots where you can't make your plays, you have to play them at halftime. Now, the halftimes are sometimes a little extended because of the tournaments and they want to run their commercials and everything. So that gives you a better opportunity. So it kind of goes back to the old days when you can't make the live bets because they're so busy and you can't get the nut. You try to go in plus plus something or minus something and it changes and you can't get it in. You can't get it accepted. But you can most of the time, 90 percent of the time, you can get them done during halftime. Yeah, the other part of that also for why it's difficult to participate in in-game or halftime betting here in Vegas and go to the games is that you want to be looking at the odd screen for the various properties around town because there are some differences, half point, sometimes a point, but usually about a half point difference, various properties on these halftime numbers. So you need to be able to, A, be able to see what books are dealing what numbers and then be have your phone set up there with your accounts open at all the different places that you have the account so you can act quickly that's something that is just not able to be done physically while you're there and then when you also consider the the noise that would be surrounding you in a live arena or even at a sports book for that matter a single sports book although you can bring your computer to a sports book it, it's a more of a distraction it's much more difficult to focus when you have to make basically instantaneous decisions where and how much in this regard here, Jim, let me ask you this question. Uh, you mentioned about uh, doing some halftime wagering, and like Victor mentions, having uh, having the luxury of being able to divulge the stats, to digest the stats of the games before you make those plays. Do you find yourself getting into what I'm going to call actual live wagering? Uh, you know, like uh, I'm talking like it, throughout the course of the game wagering as opposed to halftime stuff. Do you do that live wagering that way? I do. Uh, but like I, what I was alluding to is is how difficult it is to get your bet in. I'll give you an example. Like the team will come out and they'll go, they'll get on a run. They're up nine nothing, and they were the underdog. So what do I? I mean, there's going to be a small adjustment. The books are smarter. They're, every day they get a little smarter with this stuff. But there's an adjustment now. I can go in and bet the favorite at a lesser price than they were pre-flop. And but I you can you put it in the machine and it comes back and it changes. Like you, I'll, I'll lay six and it'll come back, oh it's now eight. Well so it, it's much easier to get it done and get the right number that you want at halftime because there's so much more time. But when you're running up and down the court so quickly, the bookmakers make adjustments very, very fast. And even though I have so many outs, I still can't always get it. I can probably get about 50% of my bets in that I try to get in at the number that I want, live wagering. At halftime, it's probably closer to 90%. One more question here, Jimmy. Well, by the way, one other, one other thing related to that is the TV feeds now are anywhere from what seven to 15 seconds delayed, which is why very often right. you're seeing it. You want to act and the commercials go, what, maybe 90 seconds. That accounts for a lot of that difficulty that we didn't have. That's the one place where being at the game live, when you're seeing it happen, gives you a little bit of an advantage, but absolutely maybe absolutely. offset by the other thing we what, talked about. What you see on your screen is not what's actually happening. 
there's a there's a delay involved in that. Naturally, there's going to be some kind of a delay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah excellent point, guys, uh, on all of that. Jimmy, uh, you and I uh, were talking uh, this morning, texting back and forth, and you informed me of something that I have never ever heard before about a basketball game on Wednesday. Today's card. We're we're doing the show on Wednesday, and I get a text from Jim Feist this morning. Uh, about a situation that occurs in an, uh, I think it's an NIT or a CBI game tonight. The C- uh, CBI game, yeah. CBI. If you would, let our listeners know exactly what it was you uncovered. Well, I, I noticed that it's Eastern Kentucky, I think it is. Right? Yes. Right. Yes, right. Against Charlotte, yeah. Right. They played, this is their fourth game in four days. Now, the other team is playing, I think, four games in five days. So they had one day break, I think, between the 18th and 19th. That's Charlotte. Now, Charlotte right now is about a five, five and a half point favorite. The last I looked at the numbers. But they were much lower earlier. So I looked at it and I said, why the hell are they betting this game? So I went back and I looked. And Eastern Kentucky has played three games and three nights, all overtime games. I said, what? Over three overtime wow. games? That are <laughs> one, was du- one was double overtime. And I think that was yesterday. I think last night right. was triple. I, it was a double, double or triple. I said, oh, my God. Now, I know they're 18, 20 years old, so you recover from – you can drink all night and still feel good the next day. And I remember those days. I guess we all do. <laughs> Not anymore. But, I mean, can you really play four games in four days? Is still your legs not be mush. And then add on top of that, you had to play overtime in all three games. So I said, this is, this is nuts. That's why the line was moving. So, well, that's one of the, the one of the nice handicapping edges when it is the college basketball conference tournament games, where you'd fade these teams playing that fourth game in four days in their conference tournament. Uh, we're finding it outside the conference tournament here, but uh, and this, we like to fade teams off of overtime games in tournaments like that too. But three and three, why wasn't that number pounded, Jim? Well, I don't actually, quite understand. It actually, was it was? I, I know people that actually laid four. Okay. Right, right, even to three and a half. Yes, right. Three and a halves. I didn't even see the three. But so what did I, I got to the party late. I wasn't, I wasn't the first one to see this. And the only reason I saw it was I couldn't understand the line movement. Why would anybody be betting this particular team like that? So I, I know a lot of people out there. So I started to reach out. Now, coming to the party late, I like another team tonight and I like uh, teams tomorrow as well. I don't want to lay a money line at five and a half when the thing was three and a half earlier. But like you said, Victor, three and a half. What I did is I took the two teams that I like already and I parlayed them in the money line with this team. So I'm not laying the five and a half. I have them even money. Good for you. Now, it's not the greatest situation in the world, but I didn't want to lay five and a half and I didn't want to lay the price on them either. Sure. The problem with Charlotte is this. And they should be able to take advantage of the situation they have because they're much more rested. In the three games they played, they won more easily than Eastern Kentucky did because, obviously, they had to play overtimes. The problem with Charlotte is they're a low-paced team. Now, that means they're not going to be running up and down the floor. The positive is they're going to make Eastern Kentucky play defense for a lot longer than they're used to having to play defense. And they don't play defense very well because they do give up a lot of points. So there's positives and negatives. So I felt much more comfortable 
adding a wager on the money line with two teams I already have quite a bit of money on. We're visiting with Jim Feist, a legend from Las Vegas, going over the Sweet 16 basketball card and games on tap on the podcast today. And Jim, before I let you go here on the show, tell me who you see in the final four when we get back together next week. Well, I want one one question from Andy. Andy, you're here. You know what's going on. I want an over and under when the hell this rain's going to stop. <laughs> the, the, the rain and the unusually cold temperatures. I'd like to say maybe uh, April 15th, which is a day more known for other things, but maybe this year it'll be known for when the weather changes. And who do I – the question again, Mark, I'm sorry. Uh, who do you have in your final four of the teams, the 16 that are alive right now, uh, who do you have in the final four, or at at the least, who do you see playing in the championship game? I think Houston's probably, if they're healthy, if Saucer's all right, and I think he is, especially now that he's had a couple days more rest. Uh, now I'm not downplaying Miami at all because Lauren is a great coach, and coaching makes a big difference at this level. You know, I started off by saying there was 25 teams that could end up there. And there's 16 teams that could end up there now. It's, I'm not a, I, I don't try to predict Final Fours because, I mean, in the past there were sometimes there was a team that was, or two teams that were just outrageously good. I mean, Gonzaga and UCLA. I mean, there's, I like UCLA. If I, somebody would ask me in the beginning, who do you think's going to win? I would have said UCLA. But they have players hurt and they're not that deep anyway. So, can they go up against the highest-scoring team in basketball, which has been there, I think, I mean, four or five years in a row to the final six, three sixteens? I mean, can they slow them down and score enough points at the same time to beat them? It's going to be. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy for them to get there without Clark and a couple other guys that are hurt on the team that are not a hundred percent. So I, I think it's a real toss-up situation. The only thing I see to Gonzaga, Jimmy, here is the, their Achilles heel is their shooting defense. It's poor. It's pathetic. They rank 219th in the country in defensive right. field goal percentage. That could be exposed. Uh, and if it is, you know, it could end up helping UCLA. But like you said, the injury situation here makes things a little bit tentative there that way. Jim, I'm going to wish you nothing but the best of luck on the card this weekend. Always good visiting with you. And we'll look forward to coming back to you next week when we talk about the four final teams that are going to be playing next weekend. Well, thank you very much. And I hope uh, I, had a, I have a better week this week and you don't have to call me Mr. Fade next week. Well, let's hope the rain stops as well. Okay. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. That was Jim Feist joining us from Las Vegas with his take on the March Madness basketball tournament heading into the Sweet 16 round. And with that, we're going to put the final wraps in the show. I'm going to turn it over to Victor King from King Creole Sports to see if Victor's got a complimentary totals play that he wants to share with our viewers and listeners out there as well. Mark, I do, before I get to that totals play, which is in the NBA, I might add. Uh, again, we want to mention the newsletter that just came out last night. It is our Sweet 16 supplement, $20, eight-page newsletter, we cover all of uh, this weekend's games in college basketball. And not only that, but if you're a fan of our NBA trends and over-under handicapping, we got a full back page. Uh, I've updated the power ratings in the NBA. We've got 10 days' worth of uh, ATS and over-under trends 
on the back page. Uh, again, 10 days worth there. It is required reading. Definitely one of the best $20 you'll ever spend. When it comes to the NBA, guys, uh, give me about 90 seconds here. This has been a weird season, if you ask me, in two distinct areas. Number one, the fact that we do not still have a dominant team in the NBA. Usually at this point of the year, you got two, three, four teams with a winning percentage of 750 or higher on the season, and we do not have that. In fact, there's only one NBA team who has a winning percentage over 700 on the season, and that's the Milwaukee Bucks. And not only that, but there's only three other teams that have winning percentages at 650 to 700%. Uh, I mentioned I updated the power ratings here. And again, Jim was asking me why I'm wearing a Cavaliers shirt here. Well, I'm wearing a Cavaliers shirt because I think the Cavaliers are better than any team in the West Conference this season. If you ask me, the top four teams in the entire NBA all come from the Eastern Conference. Milwaukee, Boston, Philadelphia, Cleveland. I think all four teams are better than any team in the Western Conference, which is a dice roll. I mean, who comes out of that conference? I have no idea. Each team in the Western Conference, when you think that they're right up there, something happens. Major injury, deficient offensively, deficient defensively. The smart, prudent guy is going to take their future's money, maybe play a couple of units on uh, Milwaukee, maybe a couple of units on Boston, maybe a unit on Philadelphia, and that's the way you should bet the NBA playoffs if you're betting the futures. Play those three teams. Don't play any teams in the Western Conference because they are not winning the NBA title this season. One more thing, guys. Uh, I talked, oh, heck, two months ago about the fact that this is the highest-scoring season in the NBA in over 50 years, since 1969-1970. We're officially at 229.0 points per game this season in the NBA. It's the highest-scoring season since 69 and 70 when we were uh, somewhere around 232. That is the fact in the NBA, a very high-scoring season. However, with that said, the oddsmakers – have done a fantastic job. There's been 542 overs, 537 unders. They've done a great job splitting things right down the middle. So with that said, guys, that's the NBA in a nutshell. Uh, we'll focus maybe a little bit more next week as we uh, talk about the Final Four and maybe expand our NBA coverage ever so slightly. But a Saturday night NBA game in which we will be going over the total, Milwaukee Bucks, Denver Nuggets. The over-under line should be in the low to mid-30s, somewhere in that, oh, 231 to 236 range. The series between these two teams, 7-1-1 one one over-under in the last nine meetings played in Denver. Uh, again, you do have both teams amongst the best in the NBA this year from a winning percentage standpoint. Bucks 51-20 and 20 straight up, Nuggets 48-24. and 24. Since late November, NBA non-division games, when both teams have a win-loss percentage of 650 or higher, like this one, eight overs, only one under, one tie. That's since November of this season. When you get two of the best teams in the league playing each other and it's a non-division game, you want to look to go over the total. And one more thing from our database. This is from that uh, high-altitude set that I created 
from our playoff NBA database. It's for teams that play on the road in the high altitudes on consecutive nights. I'm talking about Denver and Utah. Both cities play their games at high altitudes. Of course, Denver is the mile high city. And uh, Salt Lake City is somewhere over 4,000 feet in terms of elevation as well. NBA road teams playing with no rest against the Jazz and or the Nuggets have gone 22 and 5 over under in the last nine years after a road game versus the Jazz or the Nuggets the previous day. That happens to the Milwaukee Bucks. They play on Friday night on the road against Utah. On Saturday night, they're going into Denver and playing at high altitude. So we're playing at high altitude over the total system from our database, Milwaukee Bucks and the Denver Nuggets over the total on Saturday night. Victor sees the Milwaukee Bucks being gassed when they go into Denver playing little defense in that basketball game. He goes over the total for his complimentary play. And Andy Isco, before you put the wraps in the show, have you got any final thoughts on the NCAA basketball tournament? Is there a selection or a thought you would like to pass along to the viewers as well? Well, earlier I, I talked about the Creighton-Princeton game, and that's uh, the biggest line of the weekend with Creighton. Roughly a 10-point favorite most places, and I expect Creighton to win. I will be taking the uh, points with uh, uh, with Princeton. I want to see if this game goes up a little bit more to get a little bit over that 10-point spread. Uh, I do want to point uh, or a comment on uh, Victor's analysis of the NBA. You know, we have like the Grand Salami in hockey and baseball. Right. Not quite the same. But I would love to see, given how the scoring has been, let's say on a night when there are, say, more than uh, half the league playing. So let's say eight games or more. Put up a line on yes, no. Will there be a game in regulation that features 200 or fewer points? And you can bet yes or no. And, you know, uh, I can't even remember, Victor. You may have the numbers there. When was the last time we saw a game uh, with a total line this year under 210? I don't believe we've seen one under 210 this season, yeah. Andy. You're right. Yeah. But there are some, I mean, we see some games where we have seen a number of games, not very many, but it, it's probably about 5% or so maybe, which would be 19 to 1 as far as the total team scoring 200 or less. Maybe you want to up it to 210 so it makes it a little bit more closer to uh, 40, 60 or something like that. Wise observations from a wise man in Las Vegas, Andy Isco, also Victor King from King Creole Sports. Guys, that's going to put the final wraps on this edition of Mark Lawrence against the spread until next week when we're back with our final four matchup and our final ATS podcast for this season. We'll be back in July getting ready for football. This is Mark Lawrence reminding you to always remember to bet with your head, not over it, and good luck as always.